Oh, Father, would you open our ears and our hearts so that we might receive your word? Would we, with eyes of faith, be able to see your invisible hand, even guiding and directing those dark threads of evil and foes that would do us harm? Would we trust you to bring even these threads into your beautiful tapestry, bringing all things for our good and your glory. Help us now, Father, and give us faith to see. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The history of Christianity is filled with great foes that have done the church great harm. You can think of Nero and his horrible Colosseum. Or you can think of Stalin and the terror of the gulags. Or you can think of Paul Pot and those bloody killing fields of Cambodia. Uh, again and again, through the pages of history, we see new foes arise. Evil men with devious plots, doing all they can to kill, destroy, and annihilate God's people. My guess is we're familiar with many of those names and many others. But I think that many Christians have been missing one name on that list. One that should rightfully be there. One that we find in the pages of our passage this morning. The name of Haman the Agagite. Uh, our passage will show a great threat to God's people. There will be twin palace plots. And when the course of them has run, we'll find God's people on the precipice of utter destruction at the hands of an evil enemy, one who seems to have origins that are much older than the man who himself. As we study it, I hope we will learn how to face the foes that might come in our day, to learn the lesson that when enemies arise, we are to remember his rescue, that when enemies arise, we are to remember his rescue. We'll see that by looking at three different themes or threads that are in this passage. The first of which is honor withheld. Honor withheld. The second one is hatred unleashed. Hatred unleashed. And the last one is just a hint of hope. A hint of hope. Let's begin in that first one, honor withheld. Uh, chapter 2 picks up sometime after the events of what we studied last week. Um, this was one of those rags to riches story. Um, it is an orphan girl named Esther that was chosen to become the next queen of the Persian Empire. Against all the odds, she became a star that rose and shone so brightly that she became a celebrity that everyone in her day would have known of and even been envious of. Uh, but it's not just a rags-to-riches story, because the, the book doesn't just fade to black at that point. That's all just set up for a series of very dangerous uh, events that are about to unfold. The passage that, our, that uh, we read in chapter 2, 19, starts off sometime later, where it appears that Esther's cousin Mordecai has ridden her coattails to a high position. We're told that there was a gathering in a place that's called the King's Gate. 
uh, back in ancient Persia, the king's gate would have been a very specific place where very powerful people gathered to make very important decisions. Um, it was a place for uh, officials of the court to do their business. You can think of it a bit like the West Wing for the White House. You know, the movers and the shakers are all there doing their busy business. It's not quite where you'll find the president himself, but very important people are there. Well, Haman apparently has a position in this important king's gate. Maybe Esther helped him to get it. We're not told how. We are told, however, that Esther's secret, her heritage as a Hebrew, has still been kept with a tight lip. No one knows that she is a Jew, even now. Well, that's going to be important as the story progresses. But uh, as the story continues, we find that Haman being in this place is important because of a juicy bit of court gossip. Apparently, two of King Ahasuerus' eunuchs had become very upset with the king. Uh, so upset, in fact, that they wanted to wring his royal neck. Uh, they were looking for an opportunity to strangle him to death for something that Hazarus had done to make them very, very angry. And we don't know what exactly that was, but frankly, Hazarus was the sort of guy that made a lot of enemies. So it's not hard to imagine. Uh, in fact, his days will finally end far in the future when someone got so upset that they murdered him in his own bedroom. Uh, not exactly a nice sort of guy. But these two eunuchs are grumbling and looking for an opportunity to hurt Hazarus. And in their whispers about their intention, Mordecai hears about it, which puts him in a position to make a difficult choice. Does he stick out his own neck and try to raise the alarm about these murderous eunuchs? Or does he just lay low and let nature take its course? Maybe have one less evil guy in history as a result. Well, Mordecai seems to be a faithful servant of his king, because he sends word by way of Esther to the king of this deadly plot. And as a result, the king is able to uncover it to verify their murderous intention. And of course, Ahasuerus is the sort of guy that knows exactly what to do in a situation like this, which is why he has those two eunuchs hung very publicly on the gallows to make sure everyone got the message you don't mess with a Hazarus. Now, on the whole, that narrative is pretty tight and frankly, pretty complete. It's got a setting. It's got a bit of drama to it. It has a climax moment. Um, it seems to have a resolution. However, there is one piece that you would expect in a story like this that seems to be missing. And that is the reward for the hero. After all, Mordecai did a brave thing. He saved the king's life. And usually, kings are grateful for such things. You would expect him to get a ribbon pinned on his chest or a medal put around his neck or maybe a nice chest of gold for his trouble. But we're not told any of those things. Uh, the only thing we're told that happened is a stuffy-sounding order, uh, uh, detail of procedure back in verse 23 and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. In other words, Ahasuerus, instead of giving Mordecai some special honor or reward, he just had it noted in the royal meeting minutes. 
and sent off to the archives to be forgotten with all the other dusty scrolls that he produced. Now, all of that does lead to a very common situation that faithful believers down through the centuries have found themselves in. Doing sometimes brave, courageous, certainly right and good, God-honoring things, and seeming not to receive any earthly reward for them and their efforts. Um, I heard of a group of missionary doctors took great risk going into a country where Christians are not welcome. Uh, they managed to establish a clinic to do world-class surgeries and therapies for people that normally would have access to none of those things. Many people benefited from them taking that risk, and in fact, they paid their own way to do it. They paid for the instruments and the medicines and their salaries, the whole nine yards. And yet the hospital in which they did all that work tried to take credit for all that they did. They told the community that they were the ones providing such services and refused to let the missionaries talk at all about what they were doing to help the community. Uh, maybe it's not as extreme as that, but maybe you have some situation in your life, someone in your family that doesn't appreciate all the hard work you put into your relationships. Or someone at work who doesn't give you the recognition you deserve for a project making it to the finish line. Or some other thing that you do, instead of receiving thanks or gratitude or some sort of reward, instead you only get more trouble. What do you do in moments like that? Well, we'll see that Mordecai's uh, good deed, in fact, will come back to play later in the story. And sometimes this little patience will show that there is, in fact, some earthly recognition coming. But certainly for those of us who are Christians, what we care more about is not what other people think of us, but what God thinks of us. And even if no earthly eyes see what we do, if it's something that makes the true king of heaven smile, then it's something worth doing. And you can be sure that he keeps a perfect set of records, that the meeting minutes up in heaven catch every small deed done by the grace of Christ, by each and every saint. And we've been promised even that each one of those deeds will receive rewards of the eternal variety. So brothers and sisters, whether you feel appreciated or forgotten, whether you receive earthly applause or no one seems to notice what you do all day long. What do you remember that your father up in heaven sees? And that he can reward in secret that which no one else seems to notice. Well, Mordecai does not receive earthly praise. But what he does receive is something I'm sure he did not want. And that is outright hatred. That's what we see in the second plot and our second thread, that is hatred unleashed. Chapter 3 starts off in a very abrupt way. In the original Hebrew, it starts off with Haman the Agagite was promoted. King Ahasuerus, uh, for all his flaws, we can add another flaw to his list. Not only is he a drunkard and a womanizer, uh, not only is he foolish in writing of laws, he also apparently isn't good at hiring people. 
uh, because he picks someone who is less, much less than trustworthy and has great ill intent for the second highest position in the entire Persian Empire. He lifts up Haman the Agagite to be his second in command. Um, now that puts Haman in a position where he is due a certain sort of court, uh, court courtesy and honor. Everyone is forced by law to show just how powerful Haman is by bowing down to him. This was a common thing for officials in Persian courts. And everyone knew the score. King Ahasuerus said it had to be done. And if King Ahasuerus says it has to be done, then you do it. Well, at least most of the time. Uh, this is one of those cases, though, where people did it. They were bowing down to Haman as an act of courtesy. That is except for one, one exception. Mordecai. Uh, we're told that our friend Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. He refuses so persistently that his peers notice, and they come up to him and say, Mordecai, what are you doing, man? Why aren't you obeying the king's command to bow down to Haman? And Mordecai refuses to tell them why. All he'll say is, I'm a Jew. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Well, you could read it as a bit of piety, as an act of his religious uh, faithfulness to Yahweh. In that case, it would be similar to what you see in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow down before the idol during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, even though they might be killed in a fiery furnace for their trouble. But the problem is that we don't have any indication in the text that Haman views this as a religious act. And in fact, as I already mentioned, it was a common thing for even very religious Jews to bow as court, court courtesy and not view that as idolatry. So that doesn't really make sense. Oh, on the other hand, you could read it as a fit of jealousy. I mean, Mordecai should have rightly been rewarded. Second in command of the Persian Empire sounds pretty good for saving the king's life. He could just be salty about the fact that Haman got the position that he secretly wanted. But then again... Mordecai seems to have more virtue than that. I don't think that that's a good explanation either. So why in the world won't he just do what he's being commanded and expected to do and bow down? I think the text gives us some hints. Right from the beginning, Haman is presented as someone who's going to be trouble. Even his name, Haman. Uh, in Hebrew, it sounds a lot like the word for wrath and vengeance. So later, when it's described as Haman being angry, it's a play on words. Right from the beginning, you're not supposed to trust him. But even more than that, did you notice the family name that Haman had? Haman the Agagite? Uh, taps into a rich vein of the enemies of God's people, going all the way back to the Exodus. Um, as God's people were on their way to the promised land, they encountered foes at different points. And the first foe they encountered was a nation called Amalek, Amalekites. Uh, they came out and tried to destroy them while they were in the wilderness. And God, Yahweh gave them victory. They conquered them. And in so doing, he gave a prophecy that this would not be the last battle between the two. This is Exodus 17, verse 6. The Lord will have a war with Amalek from generation 
to generation. In other words, this isn't over. Amalek is going to come back. And in fact, we see that very thing happening through the history of Israel. Uh, when the first kings were around, uh, King Saul, who were the first people he fought against? The Amalekites. And what was Saul's big failure? Well, it's that he refused to carry out God's command in killing the king of the Amalekites after he defeated them. King Agag was spared instead of put to death. And as a result, all sorts of trouble came upon Israel. Well, from that point forward, the Israelites use Agagites, as in the sons of King Agag, as a shorthand way of saying murderous enemies coming back, fulfilling that prophecy of our foes that just won't go away. Haman seems to have picked up on the fact, uh, Mordecai seems to have picked up on the fact that Haman, maybe he's directly descended from King Agag, or, or maybe he just has the same spirit of evil motivating him. But one way or another, he represents the foes of God's people down through the ages. And so he can't bring himself to bow before him. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether that's the right decision or not. Just that that is the occasion for moving the plot forward. Because Haman takes this insult and use it, uses it for murderous intent. Haman becomes super angry and decides from that moment forward, he's going to settle the score in blood. But Haman's not the sort of guy to do his dirty work himself. Now, instead, he's going to find a way to have someone else take care of not only Mordecai, but all of his people too, to wipe out each and every one of the Jews in the entire Persian empire. How is he going to do that? Well, in verse 7, we see kicking off a three-part or a three-step plot to bring about the grisly, bloody end of each and every Hebrew. It starts off, first step is to consult the gods. In verse 7, he's rolling dice because this is what people back then did. If they wanted to undertake some risky endeavor, you wanted to know what the stars said and by implication what the gods wanted to happen. One way you could do that was by casting lots or throwing dice. Uh, Haman goes out of his way to roll a bunch of dice and get a very specific date. A date 11 months in the future. On that date, his goal is to be able to wipe out each and every Hebrew. The second step is to get a Hazarus to do his dirty work for him. Uh, he goes to a Hazarus and uses what is undoubtedly a, um, a textbook example of manipulation. Um, he uses a set of arguments that are half-truths, outright lies, and even bald-faced bribery to get a Hazarus to do what he wants him to do. He says, King, you know, there's this group of people, they're, they're so insignificant, you don't even know their name. But at the same time, they're such a threat to you because they have their own set of laws. And if they have their own laws, then they're not going to obey your laws, King. So you've been very patient, not wiping them out. But now is the time to, to do what needs to be done and show strength. You should just wipe all of them out. 
And if you have any doubts, here, I'll give you 750,000 pounds of gold, of, of, of silver, to just, you know, tip the scales in favor of the right decision. Now, to put it bluntly, King Ahasuerus should have seen right through Haman's proposal. I mean, not naming the people group in his empire. If he did find out they were Jews, he would find out that their other law that they kept actually told them to seek the welfare of the city they were in, not to be traitors. And then the bribing with two-thirds of the annual revenue for the Persian Empire. I mean, that, if that doesn't set off alarm bells of, hey, this might not be a guy you want to trust, I don't know what does. But then again, Ahasuerus isn't the sort of guy that's known for paying attention to details. And apparently, he's the sort of guy that loves tons and tons of silver. So he says, Haman, that's a great idea. Here's my signet ring. Go off and do your thing. Which leads to the third step of the plan. And that is, Haman has messengers sent out across the entire empire, telling everyone on this date, 11 months in the future, the end will come for each and every Jew in the empire. But the plan can't be finished until it ends in a moment of evil irony at the end of chapter 3. Did, did you notice this detail? As the news is going out, God's people must have been dismayed. The city of Susa, we're told, is tossed into confusion. And what are Haman and Ahasuerus doing? They're sitting down, drinking the night away, enjoying the finer things in life. It is... Evil exemplified in a high Persian court. Now, what are we to take from this? Well, I think one set of things we can uh, take from this is to realize that Haman's evil plot with the dark web that he has been spinning gives us a, a, a bit of a picture of an even darker, more ancient evil that has been at work trying to destroy God's people from far before any man named Haman came around and is even at work to this very day. I mean, consider what Haman did. He used lies and deceit and accusations to try and destroy God's people. Don't we have an enemy that will use anything at his disposal, even hurling accusations in the courts of heaven? to try and destroy our very souls. But praise be to God, we have a king that sees through all that, and we have a mediator who shed his own blood so that we know in the courts of heaven, even when we are guilty, that we have been declared innocent by the blood of another. I think we see in Haman the evil intention of Satan, which is why it's no surprise that we also see in Haman that reoccurring type of evil that happens down through history. Now, we live in a moment where I can't preach a text like this without talking about the fact that anti-Semitism is a very real thing. You can see it on the pages of history very clearly, and you can see it at the moment we're living in very clearly. Uh, there have been many evil, murderous plots designed to wipe out all the Jews. Uh, you can even point to what happened recently with Hamas this last year. 
that express intention, killing every man, woman, and child. Why is that? Well, could it be that there is more at work than just the politics of the world and the sociological analysis of our day? Could it be that there's even ancient, an ancient foe that would seek to continue to seek to work woe? Yes, even bringing about the destruction of the ethnic Jews. And, and frankly, very sadly, uh, down through history, Christians have participated in anti-Semitism in sometimes really ugly ways. Um, if you just look up the period of history called the Inquisition, you will find all sorts of people claiming to be doing things in the name of Christ. In fact, just looking for ways to torture and kill Jewish people. Now, with that said, as the Bible teaches that we are grafted into the family tree of Israel as believers ourselves, it should be no surprise that we also would see foes continue to rise up like the Paul Potts and the Stalins and the Neros of history. That even there might be more in the future that rise up and threaten to destroy us. What do we do when moments like that happen? When it seems like the dark threads of their evil plots have us trapped? Well, we remember the words of our Lord Jesus, don't we? John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Which means somehow in the mysterious, hidden movements of God and history in our lives, there ought to be a hint of hope if we'll just have eyes to see it. And in fact, our passage before us had just that same thread running through it. That's our third and final thread, the hint of hope. The details are so small, you'd be forgiven for reading right over them. And yet, they can't just be coincidence, can they? Uh, Haman, in his murderous dark plot, spent all that time rolling dice, casting lots. But if you know your Old Testament, you know that there is no such thing as random chance, not in a world of a sovereign, omnipotent, and good God. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Is it any coincidence that he comes up not on one month in the future, but 11 months? A lot can happen in 11 months, as we'll see as the book progresses. But then there's an even bigger coincidence, if there is such a thing. What was the day that Haman finally put his plot into motion? The day when he went and convinced Ahasuerus, and the day that he sent out those messengers to proclaim the dread to all the kingdom so that all of God's people would have terror fill their hearts? What was that day? We're told it is the first month and the 13th day. Why is that significant? Well, because God had commanded that on the first month and the 14th day, the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed each and every year. Which meant as the heralds went out with the news of impending death and destruction, God's people were busily preparing 
to remember a moment of their rescue at the hands of another foe, Pharaoh from ages gone past. Is that a mere coincidence? Or might even those dark threads that Haman was spinning turned out to be spun into a beautiful tapestry by the invisible hand of a good and glorious God. I have to think that as the news reached the ears of the Israelites, they might have asked themselves the question, does he still care? Is he still the same as he was back then? Might he still rescue? Of course, we can ask ourselves those same questions. And in fact, we even have better reason than they do to ask them. Because wasn't there another Passover plot that led to the death of our Savior, but led to the assurance of eternal life for each and every one of us? So when we see foes arise and their dark plots seem to be spun around us into a web we can't escape, maybe we should ask, does he still care? Is he the same today as he was back then? Might he still rescue? When we see foes arise, we are to remember his rescue. Uh, one of you sent me a poem written by Grant Colifax Tuller called The Weaver. I want to end our time together by reading it. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride Forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent, and the shuttles cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful, and the weaver's skillful hand, as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Amen. Might we trust the invisible hand of our good and glorious God who is sovereign over all things. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we submit ourselves to your will for our lives. Yes, Father, even to those hard, difficult trials, the dark threads that seem to spin a web around us and entrap our souls. Father, we know that there is an enemy that seeks to work us woe, who would Use all of his wrath and anger to destroy our souls if you would allow him. And yet we trust. We trust that as you rescued your people of old that you have assured us that we are rescued in your son Jesus. That our sins have been paid for. 
that we have been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, that we can find all the grace and all the help we need on the day of trouble if we just find our help in him. Father, we pray for any who might be present this morning who have not yet trusted Jesus. Uh, Would they repent of their sins and by faith, would they trust Jesus to provide all that they need? Would they trust that though this life might be filled with tribulations and troubles of many kinds, that Jesus has overcome the world and that as long as they are with him, that they are eternally secure. Uh, Father, even now as we turn our attention to you in singing of the glories of Christ alone as our Savior and our Lord, would you lift our hearts and lift our minds so that we might worship the way we should. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.